Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Delighted this time to be joined by Thomas Quinn, who's an 18-year-old six-year school student, originally from Glasgow, but now living in Qatar with his family. However, his love of Scotland means that he intends to return home to study at university, pursuing his interest in politics into higher education. We shall no doubt hear about that interest in the course of this podcast. And unlike Boris Johnson, he is not shying away from any interviews. Uh, to be fair, I'm not the literary equivalent of Andrew Neil. although I think if I turned up at my house with a similar mop in my head, I'd find the door locked, my bags packed, and dumped on the doorstep. But Thomas has always been a voracious reader, and you may be able to take an educated guess as to what some of the important books in his early childhood are. I should also explain at the outset of this episode that Thomas is my nephew, and indeed I can say hand in heart that he is my favourite 18-year-old nephew called Thomas. Thomas, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much. Now you have the distinction of being the youngest guest on the Read All About yeah, It podcast. It is an honour. <laughs> it is an honour. It's not a title that I think I'm going to lose any time soon. Well, you never know. There may yeah. be all, all these uh, young readers will be listening Matthew to will be on it next, my little brother. Now, I was going to, obviously in the course of this, we'll be chatting about some of your favourite books and mm-hmm. some of your not-so-favourite books and why you've chosen them. But one of, the th- one of the first things I wanted to ask is that, you know, obviously you've always, I think from from when you've first learned to read, you've always been you know a big reader. Yeah. But as you get older, is it something, you know, I've read loads of studies about, you know, especially young men kind of shy away from books or don't read as much, but that's not something that you, you, you've not lost that interest in reading? I've not lost it, it's just a bit more difficult finding the time when you get kind of into sixth form, that kind of thing. There's a lot more pressure for exams, a lot more pressure for studying, and the reading you do tends to be a bit more academic than it was when I was younger. But I've still got that, I've still got the bug, I still love reading, it's still... It's still just amazing fun to read a book and for a book to grab you and just take you away to a different world and get lost in a book for an afternoon. Yeah, because I, I think quite often, and I've spoke to you know teachers before about this, about the challenge of trying to get teenage boys in particular to read because obviously there's other interests, there's you know, things like PlayStation, yeah. that sort of thing, there's sport, there's... Girls, there's loads of yeah. different stuff that. But I mean, for like you and your friends, is it you know like reading books and talking about books? Is that quite just a normal thing for you guys to do? Not for my friends. I honest, I'd say that I'm the only one that would regularly read. So if I read a book, it's just kind of for myself. Like maybe my girlfriend will read a book and I'll be able to talk to her with it. But she's probably the first person really out there that I've found that I can actually read and talk about a book with. Is that just something that they, they're obviously just interested in other yeah, things? Yeah, just interested in other things. Like, my best friend Chris is really into his music. It's just a different kind of entertainment form that he prefers to books. And other friends are more into sports or any other things that just aren't books. Because it's always interested me that, as I say, your cousin Rebecca, who's one of my daughters, yeah. and she has that kind of same enthusiasm and, and love of books and reading that you do. But my other two children, your other two cousins, Louise and Andrew, and even maybe your, your younger brother, doesn't yeah. read as much as you. Yeah, and it's interesting not. that it's maybe I, there's an element of it's just something that you're born with that interest, and yeah. as you develop it, as you say, you never lose that magic of what a book can bring. No, exactly. But I think it's the kind of thing. That I think often you can tell young 
Like, I started reading really young. When I was, like, three, I was trying to figure out what the red top people said. To be honest, probably sitting on the higher end of the reading level of those people. But <laughs> it is the kind of thing where if you want to read, you'll read. But if you don't, then you can't force it. You can't, I can't force Matthew to start loving books. But he might, you know, I always think, you know, the example, obviously your mum and dad have encouraged you. He'll see you reading it. There might become a point when he's a bit older that he, he might start picking up books. Yeah, I hope so. It's... I think as you get older, maybe, when you start kind of being more conscious of your interests and more kind of choosing them, then maybe he'll get more into books and start seeing them as an intellectual pursuit. But for the minute, I think he just prefers Fortnite. Oh, that's fair enough. Now, obviously the, the format of the podcast follows a similar vein and asks people five questions. And the first question is your favourite book from childhood. Now, some of the previous guests have, have maybe had to really search the depths of their memory to yeah, find no, out. Yeah, it's quite recent. Obviously for you, it's it's, it's not such a, a long journey back. And the book that you've chosen is? Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It's a book that I, actually, I finished really young. Like I said, I started reading really young. And I finished this book when I was seven on a caravan holiday in Cornwall. And just Harry Potter in general was kind of my end to reading. I read the Harry Potter books and they really got me excited about reading. It was obviously the first kind of series that I'd read, but it was also the first series that kind of caught me. And even up to a couple of years ago, there's a whole kind of fan community around Harry Potter of people who grew up with these books or even with the movies. And there's a massive depth of knowledge, even outside the books, whether or not you agree with some of the things that J.K. Rowling's come out with since about it. There's just so much to delve into, even outside of the books of Harry Potter, with new movies or even... I read Harry Potter, I read The Seven, then a couple of years later she released some books from inside the series, like she released a couple of textbooks from it, like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and even children's books from inside that world, and it was just fascinating to me that... This world that obviously doesn't really exist, but almost felt as complicated and interesting and complex, really, as the world we live in. It was just fascinating that you could create that world just outside of one person's head. Now, the, the book you've chosen, The Deathly Hallows, is that the last book? Yeah, in the that series? was the finale, yeah. And it, what I always noticed in the books, and again, you know, Rebecca, your cousin in particular, that was, again, that was her into books, and... With each passing book, obviously, they become more, as you say, complex. But also even just in terms of the number of pages, they're big, don't yeah, stop uh-huh, books. So for yeah. you to be reading a book that's over 600 pages long at yeah. the age of seven, I mean, that is, that is quite impressive. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but Your no, dad I think, told me to say that. <laughs> no, I think they also got a lot darker as it went on. Like The first one, looking back and reading it again, it would work as a standalone book because it's just kind of this fun... It's a children's book, really. It's about magic spells and they stop the bad guy coming back. But as it goes on, it starts like serious dies in book five. And it sorry for the spoiler, MJ. It's not book <clears> five. Yeah, sorry for spoilers <laughs> for Harry Potter from 20 years ago. But that will continue. But as it goes on, characters that you've grown to love start dying. And it goes from this kind of happy-go-lucky children's book, the second book's got a flying car, how funny is that, to... The seventh book has an orphan child in it because his parents die in the war. But that's quite for somebody who's quite young. That's they're they're, they're quite sophisticated. Yeah, themes and storylines to deal with. Yeah, and I don't think I dealt with them at first, but going back and I reread the Harry Potter books about twenty times. But a couple of years later, I read this book again, and it's the first time I cried at a book. 
because there's a scene where they very graphically kind of describe Voldemort killing Harry Potter's parents and I cried at that and I had nightmares about it. I had nightmares of like Voldemort opening my gate on Rye Hill Road and coming and killing my parents and it was the first book that had emotionally affected me like that. Because I always, I wonder as well, and it's maybe a question that I should ask your mum and dad about, because I always remember when, as I say, when Rebecca was reading the books, at first you're thinking, so she's, she's reading the books, she's, she's reading all the words, but is she taking in the storylines and what's going on? And then actually when we were just asking her different questions, she was, and I'm guessing the same thing, your mum and dad were probably thinking, right, you can read all the words, but are you getting the story? And the very fact that that story affects you like that, yeah. obviously yeah, had an impact on yeah. you. And even like... I read, reread them about a million times. I can't do it as well now, but there was a point a few years ago where if you asked me for any Harry Potter fact from the books, I'd spit it right back at you. Like what Parvati Patil's sister was called, or <laughs> why she was so scared of Professor Trelawney in book three, and I could like throw it right back at you. I, that's what I I love. I mean, you kind of touched on like. J.K. Rowling there, and, and obviously people have different opinions, for example, on her politics and what have you, that's fine, but I just love that, the, what she, she created that world, but also, I think what she did for a, anybody, any parent who has children from your age upwards for about 10, 15 years period they absolutely love those books and, yeah. that, and it has given you that what I think is a lifelong love of books Absolutely, yeah, and it's a book that I read with my parents, and all three of us enjoyed it even Matthew started reading them a couple of years ago and he's he's enjoyed them as well. He's just not as kind of avidly reading them as, as I was. But my mum and dad read those books with me and the fact that a book could appeal to me at six and my parents in their 30s, that was fascinating as well. And where do you stand on the film adaptations of the books? They vary in quality. I think Half-Blood Prince is probably my favourite of the movie adaptations because it managed to capture the kind of the teenageness of book six quite well, where it is just this kind of like confusing Harry and Ron are getting girlfriends and don't really know what to do with that information. It captures that quite well, I think, and I don't like the fifth movie at all. And I think it's because the fifth movie and the first part of the last book adaptation, because they condense too much of the books. Like, book five is a fantastic book, but it's really long, so in order to cut it into like a two-hour movie, they dropped massive passages from it, and I don't like when movies do that. I think as much as you can't literally film a book, I think you need to kind of get as close to it as possible because there's things within a book that are that give a story something different than it can really have in a movie. And also, if, as a fan of the book, when you're watching the film, you want to see, as you say, you, you know you can't film everything, but you want mm-hmm. to see is accurate a representation of what you love on the page. Yeah, absolutely, especially in book five. Like, they'll drop everything around Christmas in that book, and Christmas in that book involves like a trip to a magic hospital. And I would have loved to see that on film. I would have loved to see even the emotional parts of that, like Neville Longbottom's parents were tortured until they lost their minds. And you meet them in the book, but you don't meet them in the movie. And I think that even massively changes the tone of it, because within Harry Potter, the book series... That serves as a kind of reminder of the actual emotional impact of these crimes, of these war crimes that Voldemort commits, and kind of as a reminder of the actual human impact of this story. But then in the movies, you don't have that, and it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have that reminder. So you kind of, 
you're not as emotionally invested in it for the rest of the series. I suppose the final Harry Potter question, and I'm sure every Harry Potter fan did it, what, what house did you see yourself in? Gryffindor, but I was Gryffindor back then, but, you know, you grow up, things are a lot more complicated than that, you know? <laughs> well, we move on to question two, and again, it's taking you on, and, and the books that you've chosen, it's quite good, even like the, the when we get to the point with the book that you're currently reading, again, it's just taking you on to where you are now in terms mm-hmm. of your life and, and your reading journey but the, the second book in terms of your formative years you've moved on to a book by John Green yeah The Fault in Our Stars that that book and I think John Green's books generally were really important for me in developing kind of myself as a person because his books are very much about how complicated the world is and how you can't reduce these things to simplistic ideas so the only thing left is to just accept that everything is really complicated you're never really going to understand all of it but just act like a good person and just be nice. And there's points, even just John Green's writing style, I really love because it's it brings together these really complicated ideals and these really deep feelings and gets them into like sentences. Like um, they go on a flight to Amsterdam and the line that always stick in the head, sticks in my head is, I fell in love like you fall asleep slowly and then all at once. And that really captured me, the fact and the kind of love that these two characters have for each other captured me. That even though they're both going through the most tragic experiences of their lives and going through an incredibly difficult experience of having cancer and being a young teenager, they still find something beautiful with each other, they still find love. And that it inspired me in a lot of ways because the idea that in dark times there can still be something beautiful that that really captured me. And I think that's kind of guided me through a lot of my teenage years. Because I always think it must be, for John Green, a real skill. Because you see, he's, t- he's taking sort of subject matter and, and stories that can be quite complicated, but also adding on top of that, writing them to appeal to a younger audience, a kind of young adult audience. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And like you read his books, and he's like a 40-year-old guy, and he's writing from like the perspective of a 16-year-old girl and he still manages to capture that voice. He's a 40-year-old guy and he still knows how texting works. He still knows like the kind of intricacies of it and how awkward a text conversation can be when it's about to end. And he captures these things. And even kind of the... I think the cover of the book, or certainly the movie poster or whatever it was, is two text boxes and says, OK, OK. Because at the end of their first conversation, when they're try- starting to get to know each other, they don't really know what's... Like how the end of the conversation, so they're just kind of like, "Is it over? Okay, 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 okay," and it becomes this really, really adorable, you know, this like little misunderstanding that they tr- manage to morph into something beautiful and something they can kind of hold on to with each other. And I suppose if you're reading it as a teenager, when it comes to that point, as you say, without those text messages, if he doesn't get that absolutely right. That will jar with you so much you'll go, I'm not totally convinced totally pulls you out. It, ha- it happens in movies all the time. You'll be watching a movie and they'll have the wee text bubbles pop up on the screen and then you're like, don't text like that. Mm. That's not... That's just weird. No one does that. And does it that totally it, pulls it you spelt, out. It was all spelt correctly. It was all spelt start. correctly. It was disgusting. <laughs> I really couldn't go it. No, but, um, no, but it's little things like a sentence will be out of place or just not the kind of thing that you would say over text. And it really throws you. It really takes you out of the book. But he manages to nail... The tiny things like that. In one of the other books, I, I actually had read a couple of, of his books. One was Paper Towns, which yeah. I thought was 
again was a really clever idea uh-huh. but I, I imagine again that would probably it'd appeal for you, to you in a different way but I, I thought it was really well written yeah it was a lot of his books were really well written There's, he just has quotes in his books you know like it's all written in this ultimately very flowery way but it still captures something very real and very deep and you read certain passages in his books and you're like oh I didn't realise I was thinking that but that's the best way that I could actually mm-hmm. express it do you think as well you know given the way you started reading, you start reading the Harry Potter books, you read the whole series, that if you find an author like John Green and you like one of his books, then you think, right, I'm going to read the next one and the next one, and, and you, you start to read everything that he's written because you enjoy the way that he's written, but also you're convinced that he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Like You find an author with a voice like that, and <clears throat> you find an author that just really suits your preferences of these kind of abstract books, almost like... and books that can be read metaphorically but also just have really funny scenes in them and I think that that is what really appealed to me about The Fault in Our Stars is that like it's this overarching love story about finding beauty in the darkest times but there's also like funny scenes where they kiss in the Frank house and that's a bit weird but it's like dead funny <laughs> like the fact that a book can have both of those things that just really appealed to me. And again similar to the first choice how did you feel about the, the film adaptation of it? I haven't seen it yet, because I don't want to. Like, I'm worried that it would just be too different. Not that it would spoil the book, because yeah. the book always exists and the book's always going to be better, but that is kind of why I don't want to watch that movie. Like, I know the actors are good, I know everything about it is probably a really well-made movie, but there's just something about adapting that book that's going to feel weird to me. Yeah. Now, I can understand that because, you, as you say, you don't want to either watch the film and think they've missed, there's a real opportunity missed. Yeah. As you say, with some of the, the other Harry Potter books, they're maybe cutting out something that in the book means a lot to you. Yeah. If they cut out my favourite scene, then I'm going to be gutted <laughs> and I never got to see it. Be sending text messages to yeah. the director. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tweeting John Green, where was my favourite scene? That's the thing, he's probably... You know, once he's sold the, the, the rights to yeah, the book... Yeah, he's got very little live. to do with it. Yeah, in yeah. fact, John Green's got a YouTube channel with his brother and he talked about the movie quite extensively and he was essentially like, I like the movie, but I didn't do it. Stop asking me for stuff. And again, that was probably something else that really drew me to his books was that he had this kind of online persona where he was a very relatable author, where he was very like, I'm struggling, I don't know what to write. I'm like, like total writer's block after he finished that book or he'll read a bit of his book or he'll talk about his book and being able to obviously not literally but having an author kind of explore his own themes with you was really interesting Well you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me Paul Cuddy and my guest this week is Thomas Quinn, a student who is currently living in Qatar, although he's back in Scotland, for this podcast. And we're on to book three, Thomas, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. It's I struggled with this, I really did, because I didn't want to make it too political, essentially. But I've landed on 11.22.63, which is a Stephen King book that I read on holiday about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And it's a fantastic book. It's just a thriller. It's not, you know in a very different way to John Green and Harry Potter, it grabbed me because you start reading this book and it's about, spoilers it's about this guy who figures out how to time travel in a very specific way, there's kind of a universal supernatural anomaly and when he goes through this door he steps out in 
1958. And that's the only way you can time travel. It's between that point and 2011, I think it is. And he goes back to 1958 and he just starts exploring this world where he's completely out of time and eventually he decides that the best thing he can do with this power is stop the Kennedy assassination. And first of all, I absolutely adore alternate history books. They're fascinating to me, just picking a point in time and going, what if it didn't happen like that? And that happens towards the end of this novel, but for the entirety of this novel, I was gripped by it. It was one of those books where I was reading it at the dinner table, and my mum was telling me, Thomas, stop reading that book, you're at dinner, it's rude. And, but it's just the kind of book that, it's a very cliche thing to say, but I couldn't put it down. It grabs you from the first few chapters, and you're just stuck in it, stuck in this world, constantly wanting to know what's about to happen, whether or not you'll save Kennedy, there's... He explores the idea that maybe it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald and he goes through this entire time period. He's going back, I think he spends about 10 years in the past overall because he goes back and he spends however long just exploring, however long making absolutely sure that it was just Lee Harvey Oswald that did this and then another five years to go back and actually stop the assassination. Because obviously that is the title of the book and it's the American way of writing it. Yeah. 11, uh-huh. 22, 63. When I, was, I did a wee bit of checking up on the book and apparently Stephen King said he first had the idea I think back in 1971 but yeah. it took him about another 30 or 40 years before he actually, yeah, before he actually I think he might have read one or two other books in that <laughs> intervening period I'm sure. but it is interesting I mean you say you like alternate histories so there was a The Man in the High Castle for example which then became a, a series on, on Amazon I don't know if you've I've read that but again it's an alternative history of World War Two. what mm-hmm. happens if the, the Allies don't win the war and, and what happens the impact in America and elsewhere and I think you're right it's just that sometimes it's just one pivotal moment in yeah, history exactly. what if, if that changes but it doesn't change in isolation because then mm. everything changes yeah and I think even with this book and what grabs me about those books generally is the idea of changing something and having unintended consequences of what when you are trying to do a good thing like, this guy goes out of the past and he just wants to stop the Kennedy assassination. He thinks it'll be a good thing. Stop a man dying. That's kind of the quintessential good thing. But he comes back to the present and it's a nuclear winter because Kennedy didn't escalate the war in Vietnam or starts nuclear exchanges between India and Pakistan. And it's all the kind of ripple effect of Kennedy not dying that day. Because even though he tries to do a good thing, it ends up being bad in the long run. And he, for him personally even, he comes back into the future, he sees this awful, awful world, but he's found love in the past, he's found someone that he's fallen in love with, he doesn't want to leave that behind, but he knows ultimately that he has to reset it, because every time you go through and back it resets time, and he knows ultimately that he has to, but he doesn't want to, because he's found someone he loves, and he, he has this personal dilemma at the end of, is history worth the woman I love? And that was that was a fascinating thing even to read because it's one of those things that seems like a really easy decision, but you can understand that when you're making that decision, it's a lot less easy. Because it's one of those things, and, and probably as you go older, there'll probably be a lot of people probably my age or, or, that could sit and, and think back on their own life and, and various twists and turns along the way. If I had done A instead of mm-hmm. B, would I be here? And I suppose that's it depends where you are at a certain point when you think yeah, that. You don't want to have, have those regrets. And as you say, when you go back, he's trying to do something on a grand scale, but on a personal level, 
he has to he's got that yeah. dilemma as well uh-huh. of what he does if as you say when he meets somebody and yeah. wants you know, falls in love with him. And I think there is this kind of inherent curiosity for everyone, really. What if it wasn't this? What if my life had just like a tiny little turn? What if we what if my family hadn't moved to Qatar? How different would my life be now? Who would I know? What would I've been doing over those seven years in Glasgow instead of Doha? And I think for everyone really that is I think that's kind of the fundamentally interesting thing about alternate history, is everyone wants to know what is possible and what could have been possible. I suppose that's ultimately, you never want to kind of, you have to look forward because you can't change the past in reality. But yeah. for a novelist, you can understand why somebody like Stephen King or other <coughs> novelists, it's a brilliant way of, because I think there's a book that's just coming out, I was just reading about it before we did this podcast called Rodham, and it's an alternative history of what happens if Hillary Rodham hadn't yeah. married Bill Clinton what happens ah. to her life so again it's just taking a figure changing a pivotal moment in her yeah. life and thinking well what happened then? yeah that's, a, that's actually a really good idea for a book so there's, there's probably a million and, a million and one yeah things, absolutely you know you pick a, a moment in history you're really interested in and say well what if that didn't happen yeah what if it had just been slightly different outcome so have you read any other Stephen King books I've got a few on my, le- on my bookshelf but they are so thick like one of them is I think one of them breaks a thousand pages so it's the kind of thing that I think it's I think Stephen King books are kind of holiday books you need a lot of spare time to get through a Stephen King book especially essentially because they're so well written because they're a thousand pages but you still want to read the next page for every single one of those thousand pages and it's the kind of thing that disrupts my studying to be honest yeah you need to focus on your studies exactly I mean it's interesting for example The Stand which a lot of people would have read which is, is a Stephen King classic and then with the current kind of situation in China with the, the virus that's spreading there a lot of people I'm sure in conversations where you said that's how you know The Stand yeah. starts with this pandemic and suddenly mm-hmm. societies fall apart yeah. how, because we're, we're sort of interconnected so something starts somewhere and it's immediately spread yeah. across the world and I think even that's that's kind of similar to alternate history is that like alternate present as a result of an alternate history and like whether that's books, movies, video games even I think it's fascinating to see if that had changed what world would be now and what would, what would have changed now and with things like that what if this outbreak in China is as bad as the media are making it out to be it sweeps the globe and we can't stop it and then society starts falling apart then what are we actually going to do about it? As long as we get this podcast out and people can listen to it first yeah, that's, that's the main exactly. thing. Pretty sure that'll save. <laughs> <laughs> now if JK Rowling is listening to this podcast obviously she'd have been delighted obviously, with, with, yes, with how happy. much that mm-hmm. you've, you've praised her books earlier mm-hmm. on. However we now come to the book that uh, you couldn't be paid to read again. Yeah. So she may be a bit disappointed when she hears your choice. It's a, it's a book that I bought on the same day I bought 112063, but it's The Casual Vacancy by J.K. Rowling. I read Harry Potter when I was younger. I loved those books. They grabbed me, and I was really excited to read this book, and it's about this kind of small provincial town in a council election in Middle England, and it's just so boring. There's just, like, nothing happens and then too much happens. Like, it starts off very meandering, just kind of, oh, a guy had a heart attack in a car park. And then towards the end, it's kind of this scandalous book. And it just, it feels a lot like she wrote a kind of boring book, got to the end of it and went, I need to make this an adult book somehow. So suddenly, like, it's too dark. It's all about incest and babies dying and teenage sex and it's just it's just it feels unnecessary 
you get to the end of the book and you're like, oh, I was just a bit boring and now it's just went too far in the other direction. It just feels artificial. And it's the one book that I nearly didn't finish because I'm, I'm the opposite of you. I need to finish a book. If I start a book, I need to give it its full chance because I know that someone's put, you know, a lot of time and a lot of effort into it. So it feels... I feel like I have to respect them by finishing it. But that book, I came close. reading. Like, I read that after I learned and I was like, how has this fallen apart so quickly? That was such a good book, and now I'm sitting by the pool reading this, like, that didn't just happen, did it? That is... Why? And that is kind of, genuinely, that was the emotion that I felt for that entire book. Why? <laughs> was it more disappointing because it was J.K. Rowling, given how much that you loved Absolutely, absolutely. It was unrecognisable. The language was different. The plot was so completely different. So the themes were so completely different. It was it's genuinely really disappointing reading that book. Definitely the most disappointed I've been reading a book. When I was, when you, when I, you gave me your choices, so I kind of had a wee look at what was said about the casual vacancy. So I've got this actual quote from J.K. Rowling at the time. So she says... Um, you know, she was talking about how the fact she wanted to put it out under her own name rather mm-hmm. than, a, than a pseudonym. And she said, The worst that can happen is that everyone says, Well, that was dreadful. She should have stuck to writing for kids, and I can take that. So I'll put it out there, and if everyone says, That was shockingly bad, back to Wizards with you, then obviously I won't be throwing a party, but I will live. I will live. And I'm sure. Well, quite frankly, that was dreadful. She should stick to writing for kids. <laughs> you haven't read, have you read any of the books, the crime books that she's written? No, I know she wrote a lot of these things under the. Robert Galbraith pseudonym that like nobody ever knew that it was her apart from definitely her publishers and they happened to leak it so they could sell books just before but nah I never read them because the cynicism in one so young ah, it's, it's really shocking I, I mean why wouldn't I believe her you know it's not like it made a lot of money because it was her name or anything no but um, the thing is it doesn't detract or devalue from her Harry Potter books no exactly they yeah. mean to use uh-huh. and that's the point I'm at with the Harry Potter books is that I need to be like, these books were written by the universe. I just kind of need, to, at this point, I'm honestly at the point where I need to kind of divorce J.K. Rowling from the books because even outside of our politics, she came out like a year ago with an explanation for how wizards vanish when they do the toilet. They just do it on the floor and then vanish it. And you're like, <laughs> I didn't, that, I'd never asked. I didn't need to know. You know what? Books belong to the readers. Yeah. There's a... John Green's brother, Hank Green, said that initially, you're like, the author has to tell me what happened at the end of this book, because it's their book, they know. And then J.K. Rowling goes, <clears throat> and you go, nope, nope, books belong to the readers, It's it exists on its own, and it, you're not really relevant anymore, sorry. And J.K. Rowling got me to that point yeah. on her own. That's Just, a really interesting thing, because you know, I spoke to a couple of writers, and again, when they start writing the book, they're doing it for themselves because the story's in their head, they have to get it out. But as soon as, touching what you said, once it's published, it's no longer their property. It, it, you know, and what it means, a book, you and I could read the same book, what it means to me is different from yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And different from the author, but mm-hmm. each one's as valid. Yeah, exactly. And I've delved into that question on its own, like the whole death of the author thing and whether or not the author is relevant to a book beyond writing the words and whether their meaning can really have an impact on what the book really means. And J.K. Rowling put me onto that, basically, because I was like, I need an explanation for why her saying that wizards vanish their poo doesn't actually count. <laughs> Somebody tell me it doesn't count. That's, uh, that is a bizarre... It's really bizarre strange. Yeah, as you say, there's no need to 
give you that information? Exactly. I just I didn't ask. <laughs> and not just you. I don't think anybody nobody asked. nobody asked. No, I mentioned that in the introduction. Obviously, politics is a real interest yeah, for you. It's something that you want to pursue: higher mm-hmm. education, politics, and philosophy. Yeah. Which then leads us nicely on to the last question, which is the last book you read or are currently reading. And it's a book that, you know, again, maybe people listening in might be quite surprised for somebody so young having that real interest and passion when you tell us what it is you're reading. It's a book called Comrade by Jodie Dean, I think. And whenever I come back, that's my opportunity to buy books about politics because it's obviously a lot more difficult to buy them in Qatar. In the bookshop called yeah. The Calton Books, which I actually passed on my way up here, that sells exactly the kind of books I want to read. Books about socialism, books about Marxism, books about leftism. And that's where I got this book, and it's called Comrade, and it's about how, on the left, we need to start calling each other comrade again. Because recently, when it comes to the struggles of oppressed people, black people, um, women, even gay or trans people, we've started talking about allies. And that's not... That's too individual of a solution to these problems. Because when you're an ally, it's for your own benefit. When you think of countries having alliances... It's for their own benefit. It's it's this individual solution to a very systemic problem, whereas calling someone a comrade is radically egalitarian. Calling someone a comrade says, we're equal. Like, even in the Soviet Union, Stalin was called comrade because, at least ideologically, he was an equal. Him and the guy working in the factory were on the same level. They were both people. They were both comrades against anything against inequality and against racism and the example of racism in the Soviet Union is actually a really good one because while in America civil rights leaders were being hounded and harried outside of this book I read uh, Harry Haywood's autobiography and he talks about he went to the Soviet Union and he was racially abused and instead of as it would be in America just everyone just kind of let it slide the people on that train car got up and basically had a mini-trial of the guy who had racially abused him and reported him to the police, even while he himself was like, no, no, it's fine, I get it all the time, essentially. But these people were like, no, we don't stand for that, that's not what the Soviet Union is. And the fact that this book comes out and says, no, we're comrades, we're not allies, there's no hierarchy here, everyone on this planet is a comrade, that was a fascinating idea to me. I really liked this book. Do you think the word became toxic, particularly with, you know, like the fall of, of the Soviet yeah. Union and, and the idea that that kind of ideal of, of a communist state, certainly in the West, is it's dismissed now because yeah. it, it was seen, yeah. it's seen as a failure. So mm-hmm. that's maybe why, as you're saying, people don't want to refer to yeah. each other as comrade because of the associations with it. Yeah, absolutely. And the book even talks about that, how in Europe it is seen as this kind of outdated Stalinist term that no one really uses anymore, but I think that's a real failure of the left to just let that happen, to let this world that is kind of radical in its essence just kind of be ridiculed and ignored. Because it's interesting that I always remember when, at the time of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and again this idea that the whole communist system, that was a, it was a failure as a political ideology, but also put into practice, you can argue for and against that, any any ideology, whether it's capitalism, communism. But I remember at the time buying the Communist Manifesto because I thought it was really sad that something that obviously millions and millions of people invested in and which there's a lot of good ideas in it. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's sort of <coughs> been dismissed and and somehow capitalism has won and yeah. there's as many negatives as there are positives to that as well. I mean, you even read the Communist Manifesto and there's a list of ten pledges in that towards the end. And like free education for children is just the assumed norm now. But in the eighteen seventies that was a radical idea for those strange communists and I think the fact that ideals can change in their character so much over what isn't ultimately that long in the grand scheme of things, that really, that's really interesting to me. Also, you know, I, I mentioned the fact you're, you're wanting to study politics at university. Are you prepared? Obviously, you'll, you'll go to university with certain yeah, ideals uh-huh. and be on a certain political position, given, you know, given the fact that you've chosen this book as, as the book you're reading and, and those kind of books either prepare to be challenged on that, but also, you know, leave yourself open to no, of course, political yeah. ideas as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even studying stuff this year, in Paul, well, I'm studying politics this year at A-level, and we study loads of different ideologies, and I've even picked up ones that aren't kind of required by the school, but that are on the specification, because I think it is important to, um, to even if you don't agree with something, understand it. I think even, obviously, not the biggest fan of conservatism, but I still want to understand it. I still need to know where these people are coming from, especially because I think something that this book touches on is that for too long on the left, we've just kind of been happy winning the argument and totally being right and sitting in your moral high castle and being like, oh, well, I'm right, so so I'm fine. Well, no, you need to actually get down to the grassroots. You need to convince other people that you're right because, especially now, you know, climate crisis, it doesn't matter if we're right, we're still going to drown with everyone else Like, you can't sit in this moral high ground and go but I'm right so it doesn't matter, you need to actually get down and convince people and that is why I need, for myself at least I need to understand conservatism and liberalism and every other ideology that I don't agree with but I still need to understand why people think that way now you mentioned obviously you're every time you're back in Glasgow you you always pop out your Calton books Absolutely. and I boost their profits by filling a suitcase full of <laughs> books to take, take back with you. So are you finding you you mentioned right at the very start of you're having to balance your reading along with you know a lot of studying and what have you. Do you still get the chance to to read novels for for pleasure just now, or you kind of just focus more on politics because it's obviously impacting on what you're studying as well? I'm probably focus more on politics just now, but. That's not even necessarily by necessity. I just really enjoy reading political books and even just kind of to prove I've got an interest in it. Like, on a personal statement or something, I've read On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. It's very boring. But still an interesting insight into the foundations of an ideology that I don't personally agree with. So, yes, I am reading more politics than novels at the minute, but I wouldn't say that's by necessity, I do, I do also just genuinely enjoy reading those books. And obviously, as long as you're doing that, then Calton Books will continue to exactly. exist. <laughs> I'll prop them up. Well, we have sadly come to the end of this Indeed. podcast. It's probably the first time that you and I have sat down and, and had a really long chat about yeah, books. Probably, which actually, is, yeah, probably, Which is really good. Although, you know, as I say, I've always known the fact that you've always had your head in a book. And, uh-huh, yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see you're kind of already who you're... Your journey will be interesting in a few years' time to do this again and see yeah. where the choices uh-huh. the choices differ as, as you get older. Yeah, absolutely. But Thomas, for now, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. 
You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.